0: Hello folks, my name is Spencer George and you're listening to The Good Folk Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce you to writer and poet K.B. Brookins for a conversation about climate, grief, Texas, the South, the radical power of reimagining, and the role that we can play as artists in envisioning that future. K.B. Brookins is a Black, queer, and trans writer, cultural worker, and artist from Texas. Their work is featured in Poets.org, HuffPost, Poetry Magazine, Teen Vogue, Rich's Art Gallery, American Poetry Review, Oxford American, Electric Literature, OK Player, and many other places. Their chapbook, How to Identify Yourself with a Wound, won the Seguro Poetry Prize and was named an American Library Association Stonewall Honor Book and Literature. KB's debut full-length poetry collection, Freedom House, just released, has been recommended by Vogue, Auto Straddle, Mrs. Magazine, and many others. Currently, KB is a National Endowments of the Arts fellow, MFA candidate at the University of Texas at Austin, poet-in-residence at Civil Rights Corps, and at work on their debut installation art project, Freedom House, and Exhibition. They have earned fellowships from PIN America, Lambda Literary, and The Watering Hole, among others. KB's poem, Good Grief, won the Academy of American Poets' 2022 Treehouse Climate Action Poem Prize. Their debut memoir, Pretty, releases in 2024. KB's background in nonprofit management, student affairs, and K-12 teaching informs their cultural work. In a span of five years, they founded and led two nonprofits with friends and community members to advance LGBTQIA justice and nurture and amplify marginalized artists in Central Texas. For two years, KB was the program coordinator of the Gender and Sexuality Center at UT Austin, where they founded the Black, Queer, and Trans Collective, and co-led the president's LGBTQIA committee. In the realm of artivism, KB served as project lead for the Winter Storm Project, curated Do You Want a Revolution? Austin, Texas Artist on the Carceral State, and Watchdog, a zine about community surveillance and policing. Facilitated a workshop where youth created video poems on policing in Austin, Texas schools, and hosted a variety show to raise funds for trans people's gender-affirming care. Currently, their passion lies in public speaking, workshop facilitation, consulting businesses, organizations, and individuals in their areas of interest, and projects that merge art and socio political movement work. This is the kind of conversation that only reaffirms my belief that there can be no possible separation between the artist and the organizer, that our work is inherently political, meaningful, and has something to say. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, KB, I'm so excited to get to chat with you, and even though I've delayed this a few times, I'm glad we get to be here and have this conversation. I would love to start. I know you're in Texas, and I think Texas is a really interesting place in kind of the larger context of Southern studies. Some people consider it part of the South. Some people do not. It's kind of this borderland for like South and Southwest. I would love to hear about what Texas means to you or the way in which you think of yourself either in the context of someone who's living and working in Texas, someone who's living and working in the South, or how you've experienced it as a place?
1: Yeah, I'm interested to hear some people don't consider it as the South. It's literally the southernmost state in the US. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely I think that Texas influences my writing as well as like, you know, me as a person. I'm a very place based writer. So like when I do talk about Make a setting for a poem or any kind of piece of writing that I do. It's often Texas because it's the only place I've ever lived. Um, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. I lived in Austin, Texas for about five years. I had a super short stint in San Marcos, Texas. Um, so North Texas and Central Texas are like most of, you know, what I know and it contains people and things that I love. Um, and the people that I've come to love, because Texas, especially like going to uh, state schools, end up being like people from other parts of Texas. So, you know, I got loved ones from RGV, loved ones from Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, you know, it's just a place that I think is often misunderstood in a larger kind of like literary community, as well as like, the US, you know, um, I think that people associate Texas often with like, who represents us at the state level but I'm like um in what place can you say like the governor accurately like uh represents the sentiments of the state that's just like not the case in most places in America because of like how fraught our democracy is currently um and it's not that like Texans are uh that Greg Abbott and the Ken Paxton of it all like um were often legislated uh out of, you know, our rights, right? Um so it's not as easy as like going to the ballot box and like um letting your voice be heard. Like there are a lot of people who have uh put laws and put uh systems in place for us not to be able to so easily make our voice heard. So, anyway, I think it like I think the that Texas um and being a southern writer um and representing that in all things that I do is very important to me because I want to you know, dispel myths about Texas and Texans um, and, like, marginalized people in Texas um, and also want to reflect back, you know, like, people who literally live and love in Texas um, and want to see themselves reflected in literature and deserve to see themselves reflected in literature um, and just, like, public space. Um, There's currently, like, a slew of uh anti-transness kind of happening in every state in the u.s um including texas and i think it's important to me that this you know trans af black af uh texan af book comes out right now and i put my best foot forward to get it in front of as many people as possible because you know there's a lot of like misinformation out there right now about like who trans people are um everyone is interested in transness but don't nobody like actually you know, know what they're talking about a lot of the time. Um, So I'm like speaking from personal experience, speaking from, you know, what I like have come to know um, through research and through life um, about this place that I talk about and about this experience um, that I talk about. And of course the trans experience is not a monolith, but like giving people a glimpse into that um, so that they can access more empathy um, and so that they can, get to a place of better understanding um of transness and what it means to be a texan i think is uh necessary for me as a writer
0: i agree just so deeply with everything you've said and um as kind of a queer southern writer as well i spend so much time thinking about concepts of metronormativity and the ways in which myth-making contributes to our understanding of a place, right? And that so many of the myths we tell about the South are that you can't be queer or trans here because all the stories you get are often about leaving. So I think the idea of like rooting a work in place and doing it in a way that's very rooted in your identity is, is so, so important. And I'm really excited to see your book kind of go out into the world and get to do that. One question I have for you is when you think about Southern culture, both kind of stereotypically in these myths that we build, but also the uniqueness of Texas and Southern culture, How would you describe it? Um, Because Texan culture does feel like its own kind of piece of the South in the same way that Florida does often. And I I very wholeheartedly consider Texas part of the South, but I'm in a Southern studies program. And I actually said that to someone recently and they were like, no, I wouldn't consider Texas part of the South. That's a really hot take, which blew my mind a little bit. Um, How do you think about Southern culture through a Texan lens?
1: Yeah, um, it's a hot take and it's a wrong take. I don't know. Um I agree. (laughs) I like I don't get that at all. Um, because like you know from a historical U.S. history standpoint, um, Texas has always been considered a part of the South. Um, and Texas used to be a part of Mexico, um, which is in like the southernmost uh, or one of the southernmost parts of like the Americas, right? Um, and then you also have, I mean, yeah, Texan culture is its kind of like own bag in the sense that like. Yes, um, we're a very diverse state. Um, we're one of uh not very many states at this point that have like a majority, like I wouldn't say minority, majority majority marginalized population. Um and I think that Texan culture feels like very enmeshed in like the culture of just like multiple different um kind of racial backgrounds. Um I like that about Texas. I like that Texas is a place in which, um, like, you know, food is like so, I mean, it's part of everyone's culture, but like Tex-Mex literally is just like its own cuisine, right? Um, And then you have like the art of barbecue, which I feel like Texas has really mastered. Um, And then you also have like Texan slang, like it's just so much like enmeshed in Texas that is unique to Texas that, I mean, like when I like go other places, sometimes I don't even realize like and talking to other people and, and and going to a restaurant in New York and being like, hey, can I have a sweet tea? And that being like just weird, right? Um, or like saying y'all all the time. People love to say like when I'm out and about in some places, it's like I've never heard someone say y'all so much. And I'm like, I guess it's like a compact kind of language in comparison to some other places. And then the soda versus pop discourse, I've, I've never said pop in my life. Um, I've always like called soda, soda, right? um and i don't know i i find it endearing i find it um something that like tethers me to um texas like the things that i know that are unique about it um and the things that i feel like texas has um that a lot of other places like don't have because of the ways in which we've had to find a way or make a way out of no ways like for example um in austin where i live uh, there's a lot of just interesting, like, queer, like, nightlife stuff. Like, you could go to, you know, a gay bar and, like, have a comedian on the same lineup as drag performers who are on the same lineup as poets who are on the same lineup as, like, musicians. And that's just, like, regular because we kind of, like, speak to each other and we have this kind of like shared understanding of like we want to create queer space and we're not trying to like segment that off by like what type of art you do right um and also there's like a like i don't know there's a a level of like like ingenuity maybe is the word that like i don't see sometimes mirrored in other places where it's just like all right, we got $50 and we got a dream, right? We're going to make this event series happen. We're going to make like the community space work because it's like we can't rely on the government necessarily to like fund queer spaces, right? Like we're not holding our breath for like some LGBT center to be like our savior or our safe space. We're going to create said safe space out in public spaces, find those allies that uh, have businesses um, where we can have space, um, create digital spaces. Um, I think that I've been a part of a like little Facebook group for like years where it's like, if I uh want to talk to a trans person about medical care, um, I can go in on that little Facebook group and talk to someone like we find ways to get shit done. I think in a way that I don't necessarily like see uh, always mirrored in other spaces that have like the access and the uh governmental level support um and I'm not saying that's like a good thing necessarily like we deserve to have more resources than we currently have um but I think it it makes for some of the most dynamic and creative like organizing that I've seen before um and like the arts level, I think, is just, like, beyond. It's the reason why, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race has had so many Texas queens, right? It's the reason why, when people want to eat good, they, like, come to Texas, right? And, like, in general, the South has made kind of, like, a, like, soul food, for example, like, a cuisine out of scraps, right? Like, that comes from, like, like way back slavery times of like being given like so many little resources to make a meal for a family, for a community of people and being able to make something that tastes good, something that feels nourishing from, you know, all I got is like salt and pepper and these like couple of different ingredients. I don't know. I think it's like, I love Texas, of course. I think it's my little, you know, piece of the South that feels familiar to me. Um, I think that just, like, I wish that places that didn't know Texas got to know people in Texas a bit more and spent more time in Texas, um, so they could see some of the things that I see, and I don't think, like, when you Google Texas nightlife or something, like, the things that I'm talking about will pop up, but it's, like, once you know, you know, and once you know, it's, like, beautiful, right, um, So just stuff like that.
0: It's so well said. I feel very similarly about my own relationship to North Carolina, having grown up here thinking that I'm going to have to leave in order to like do anything with my life. Right. And then realizing that activist spaces are really different in other places. And there's something in the South that is really special and important that It shouldn't have to fall on activists and organizers to do it all themselves, but oftentimes it's like you said, that ingenuity and that peace and that community that comes out of it is really special in a way that I find difficult to articulate, so I'm glad that you were able to put it into words. One thing that I feel like has infuriated me in this conversation, I remember reading a tweet, um, and of course I want to talk about climate And disaster, because these are a lot of themes in your work. But I remember reading a tweet about Texas where people were saying, you know, we're not going to go there like filmmakers in L.A. saying, I canceled my most recent movie. I'm not going to go to Texas. I'm not going to support it. And the ways in which I think in some of these more urban spaces, there's often kind of a backlash that happens against the South in a way that I think can be really damaging to Southern organizers and artists. Because now, like you said, when you Google Texas, you're not getting the stories of these communities on the ground, right? I mean, Appalachian labor history is one of the greatest labor movements ever, but you don't get that when you Google Appalachia. And so I think it goes back to what we started with, which is this myth piece and the way in which I think I'm also a writer in the South right now and I I see some similar themes in what you and I are talking about, which is that I think we're both really concerned about the myths that have been made, but also how are we breaking them down and creating these new stories in their place? Um, And I don't even want to call them new myths because I think they need to be rooted in fact and in experience and in in community activism. Um, And that to me is not myth, but, but it is so heavily tied to like, what are these stories that get built up about Texas, about Georgia, about Alabama, about North Carolina, and, and what are the new stories that we're going to write in their place. Because right now it feels to me we're in a moment of like the South is kind of in this social mythological breakdown of the stories that have been told are not upholding. And everyone seems to be scrambling to write new stories. I think on both sides, Um, I know which side I want to be a part of writing those stories, but I would love to hear how you think about kind of like myth and the role of storytelling in your own work, as well as stereotype, because I think they're all really connected.
1: Yeah, I mean... I think I'm my best, you know, poet, writer self when I'm able to like, interrogate and turn myths on its head. So like, I think a lot of this book Freedom House is me looking at things that we've normalized. And like, I don't know, being like you guys, this is like not normal. It's not normal that we have like, I don't know, malicious in almost every city that have guns that will that will show up to your door if you say, you know, hey, my car got broken into. That's abnormal, you know, to have like literally militarized police in like every city, right? It's abnormal to have and keep telling us that we have a democracy. Um, and, you know, Texas just spent multiple months terrorizing um, trans people and terrorizing, you know, um immigrants and uh people of color pretty much any marginalized identity in the name of like border security and like saving women's sports and it's like you say something but you mean a totally different thing um and that to me is like myth making right where it's like you have this idea of what Texas is and you're continuously creating this myth and it starts to break down when you have opposition right so then you like kill the opposition or like silence the opposition through the legislative body, through, you know, uh, throwing out misinformation. I'm like, I try to really defeat and combat against like my own apathy and the apathy of others by saying like you guys they're spewing misinformation because they know that the myth that they're making is breaking down right and like they are working overtime to oppress us at this legislative level because they know the culture is moving forward without their bigotry and without their hatefulness like you see like trans representation we're in a moment um of trans representation on tv in literature, and film that we've never seen before. Like, we're actually moving forward in a lot of ways. It can absolutely be better. We are moving forward, however, though. Like, we have more trans writers in, like, the mainstream and not just, like, relegated to, like, independent presses than we've, like, ever had, right? And, and yet and still at this same time, we're doing this book banning. We're doing all of this, like, anti-trans legislation. And it's a direct response to the fact that people are being more accepting of things that a minority of people really dislike and don't understand. And they dislike because they don't understand, right? So I think it's my job really as a writer to continue to like poke into these myths that every day I think less and less people are believing, right? It's like this this idea of like Southern values and those values are just like racism and like transphobia and like white supremacy, right? Um, and people are starting to see that therefore, um, there are people, you know, the DeSantis and the Abbots and et cetera of the world that are trying to push for people not having the knowledge of like that says like those people are who they are and they're not good people and those are not like good values to be had right um and it's time to like have new values and and some of us already do have new values of like you know community responsibility of like abolition and those things are like taking off in ways that they never have and i think that there are there's a lot of fear um The myth makers, a.k.a. Republicans, a.k.a. some Democrats as well, um, more than I would like, uh, are like myth makers. Right. And like they know that the the overall worlds or like our nation in more uh, specific terms are like starting to not trust them. Right. Um, In ways that I think haven't happened before. Right. So I don't know. I'm just like I think that I will start to get scared when um the opposition is not uh working so hard to misinform everyone um, cuz then they will feel as if they've won right when we don't have all of this like censorship stuff um then i i feel more concerned but i think like we're seeing all of this because um you know like more uh simply put like people are scared right scared of like being left behind And I'm really looking forward to the day where we do completely leave behind all of these, like, things that are not working, clearly. If you have to, like, oppress someone in order to, like, uplift how you feel and what you believe, then what you believe is probably, like, fraught um, and, like, not worth believing in, in my opinion, right? Um, So I think that, you know, in my work, um, in a lot of the poems in the book, you know, I am... (laughs) Like, fighting absurdity with absurdity in some places, like, using very humorous stuff, like, talking about, like, Jeff Bezos talking about and using the form of, like, a CV to be, like, I'm I'm showing you all of these kind of, like, hidden labor things that we don't necessarily think of as labor. I'm showing you, like, critiques of, you know, an abortion ban and being, like, these are the underlying kind of messages that I see, Um in like what's happening right now right um yeah those are a couple things I could keep talking but I'll stop there
0: I I would love to have you keep talking um we're gonna continue this I I'm so interested in everything you're saying to me it feels like a lot of the moment that we're in it's poking holes in those myths but it's also making sure that as people have the myths that they bought into for their, most of them, their entire lives broken down. We're not just leaving them like floundering with nothing in place, right? We're giving some kind of new story or at least community or a level of openness that people can, can find a community to help write those stories. And I want to come here to the questions in the description for Freedom House. Um, And you ask some of these questions, which I think are questions that I kind of want to turn back on you a little bit, but you say, what does freedom look like? What can we learn from nature and our past? How do you reintroduce yourself in a world that refuses queerness? how can we use poetry as a tool in the toolbox that helps build freedom? This collection explores those questions and manifest a world where black, queer and trans people get to live. And in a way it's to a lot of people, like that feels like a fantasy, like a world where we get to live feels impossible. Right. And so it's, it's challenging that myth while also rewriting the story. A lot of my own work is rooted in um, kind of reclaiming Southern Gothic narratives and using that as a space where we can say exactly as you were saying before, making, strange what we have accepted as normal because actually so many of these things are not normal and doing it in this realm in this world where in kind of the southern gothic lens what is normal is often seen as strange Um, and kind of flipping that on its head to use to use myth in a really radical way and to help achieve that kind of freedom by saying actually this is possible and by writing it into place we're going to at least move towards that possibility which I think is you know, as a fellow writer, that in my mind is what makes writing so powerful and important and, and also really radical. And especially in a moment, the kind of cultural moment that we're in, it also makes writing inherently political because you're imagining something that you've been told doesn't exist. Or or is that a, it's impossible to have something like that exist, which the reality is, you know, when you turn to the facts, the South has the largest population of LGBT people in the country. Like there's hard data to support these things. So it's not unimaginable. It's actually happening all around us. We just don't get those stories.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yes to everything that you're saying. You know, I think that with this book, I'm just I'm asking a lot of questions because I want more of us to feel like even if there's a lot of forces that are trying to force us not to ask questions, to just like go along with how things are, we do. We still have the the like freedom right now at least to ask questions, right? And we should. And I um often say like on the page, you know, and in writing, I can be free in ways that I can't always be free, like in just like everyday life. Um, So why not use that writing as a tool to question? Because unfortunately, when you question on things like Twitter, all right, someone's gonna be knocking at your door the next day, right? Um, If I question in this book, and those who get it, get it, then like, I'm putting forth, uh, or I'm putting These kinds of like thoughts and these this kind of like poking and prodding into public space in a way that I often cannot in like, you know, the capitalism of it all nine to fives, etc. So yeah, yeah, I definitely resonate with what you're saying there.
0: I want to turn a little bit to the ideas of kind of climate and destruction which are also very rooted in my own work which I look at climate through a southern gothic lens so we'll have to chat offline about all of this but um one of the first poems I read of yours was good grief which just blew my mind when I read it and I think I thought about it for days and I actually want to read a little bit from it here because it's a poem that deals a lot with place and with climate and with landscape and with politics as well and you're doing an incredible job kind of weaving these things together but I want to just read a little bit from the last piece of it, um, if that's okay with you. Cool. So it says, a news report said that it's safe to go back to work. And I listen, because what else can you do in six inches of white? The snow melted, and I I still feel frostbitten. There are no heroes in a freeze frame changing nothing. I pose begrudgingly, say cheese, and then write this. I'm not a survivor, just still breathing. I remember grief, love's grand finale. What else do we have if not the memory of life before this? I cannot tell you how many lives I've lost to mourning, but I can tell you that the sky does what it does. Let's go for a walk and touch the trees that survived like us. Let's write a future more joyful and less inevitable in segments of leaves. Anything we dream will be better than this. I I just think it's like one of the most beautiful things I've read in a really long time. And it, it really, this poem really stuck with me in the idea that destruction can often lead to regeneration and beauty in ways that are as painful as they are hopeful and creating possibility out of things where we didn't think they were there. Um, It also is a poem that is so deeply connected to climate and to climate change and the role that is playing in the South right now. My own work is investigating coastal climate change. Um, I grew up in between the coast of North and South Carolina and thinking about the fact that When we talk about climate change, we make it so anthropocentric, right? We make it about us. But like you said, the trees are still going to be there. And there's wisdom in these things if we're willing to listen, both listening to each other, but also listening to the world around us and finding some kind of common ground in the space. I would love to turn a little bit with this conversation to the idea, we've been talking about myth. So much of that is also about breakdown and about destruction, um, but also about these kinds of possibilities of regeneration or at least of a move towards a hopeful future and the role that art can play within that. And I kind of want to leave that open-ended for you to touch in, whether it's on this poem and telling us more um, with kind of climate and the climate crisis, destruction. I want to touch on all of those things, but I'll let you kind of think about where you might want to start.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I can start with that poem in particular. It's so interesting. That's one of my, you know, more popular poems now because it was in the Academy of American Poets and won a a prize with them um, the Treehouse Climate Action Prize. I did not consider myself like an eco poet by any means um, before that poem. Um, I feel like, you know, growing up, I could say, like, oh, I had this, you know, great relationship with the with the land, but I'm like, that's not actually true. Um, I think that I was working class, right? Um, Grew up in a working class background and black, and I don't think that it was necessarily promoted for us to have like a relationship with our environment. Um, I think my parents found ways for us, um, for me to do that um, by, you know, picking pecans with them during like every season. of the year and you know having outside time and them really like wanting me to have outside time but like I don't know I didn't really feel like tethered to a place environmental wise until I like moved to Austin and my now fiance um, is like a you know environmental gay you know, it's funny how people, like, find you, right? So, like, I, one of the activities that I do to connect with her better is just, like, go on walks in our local neighborhood, and, like, because she is just, like, this kind of walking encyclopedia for, like, trees and nature and stuff, I will just, like, point to something and be, like, so what tree is that? And she'll be, like, oh, it's this tree, and it grows, like, these kinds of things, and x y and z and I'm like man you should really be a forager and she's just like well you know I got a degree in environmental science I don't really think I can like forage for real and she's like talking about all these different types of sciences that I just like didn't know um, necessarily before I knew her and when I when I met her I was like why is it not like promoted to us for us to know our local environments more Um, like knowing what trees exist around us what what uh, food naturally grows around us and like the the way that we interact with food is so like i think devastating to the climate um and like all of the transporting that we do that we don't necessarily have to do um i i i follow this account on tiktok called like the black forager and it's interesting to me i love that, them <laughs> yes uh one of the things that they said was like i don't think we actually like uh save the world by eating vegan i think we save the world by eating local And, like, that just felt so, like, crystallized for me when I met my fiancé and started to learn more about, like, what grows around me naturally. Um, And with this poem in particular, you know, it came on the precipice of me finally feeling connected to um, my environment and then having that environment, like, completely unnecessarily, like, upended by a climate crisis. That was very, like, you know, we didn't have to have that happen. I mean, all of the climate crises that we're seeing are, are due to, like human impacts um, mostly right and you know texas hadn't seen something like that before like a winter storm um because we pride ourselves on being like this hot state right in this state that like is known for having these like intense summers and like the winters are bland at, at best right um but you know was six inches of snow and i like ice right so it's not like drivable really And, you know, a thing to know about Texas infrastructure is we don't have the same infrastructure as that of a Chicago or that of a Michigan, like Minnesota, all that. I'm a place that is used to those kinds of like climates. So it's like no ice on the roads, no tires that can withstand like driving on ice, no um, power lines that are not like littered with trees around them. So trees are falling on power lines and stuff like that. And um it was bad. You know, people were without um, uh, uh, electricity and water for like upwards of like two weeks, right? Um, I The only reason why my place didn't lose power is because we're on the same power line as a um, police station, right? And like every city in uh, Texas all of a sudden had these priorities. Like they did a thing called rolling blackouts, right? Like where some places retained power, in some places didn't. And inevitably, because environmental racism exists, right? like the places that were littered with mostly like low income folks, folks of color, like their power was out much longer than that of like, you know, the bustling downtown areas and the places that were lucky enough to be on lines where like they, for things that they do prioritize, which are police, right? Police in my uh, city is like 40% of our city's budget right? They eat up everything and don't help anything. But that's a whole nother conversation. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was just a wild time. I was, since I was a very, you know, young person, um, because I've always been very anxious, and one way that I've kind of like calmed my anxiety, learned to calm my anxiety before I was a poet or considered myself a writer or anything, is just by journaling. So I was like journaling a bit, like, during this winter storm, um, now known as winter storm URI, and then afterwards, just like fondling through my feelings, because I knew like any catastrophe that happens, this was gonna be the kind of thing that uh the like capitalism and, you know, our government will want us to just like move on and not talk about, right? And like they're not gonna change anything infrastructurally unless like bullied into doing so. So I'm just like writing trying to preserve the memory but also trying to like calm down the nerves that um and the emotions that you know this like continuously moving wheel of capitalism will not like allow me to actually feel and feel through. So it's just like okay, you know that 7 days ago I didn't have, you know, I and a lot of my friends um didn't have electricity or water and now you expect me to be in the Zoom room talking about, you know, (laughs) like work shit. It's just like pointless to me and like feeling and and walking around doing my walks with my partner and seeing like how regenerated the area already was after so much, you know, unnecessary destruction, like a lot of trees didn't make it, which was really sad to see. Um, But, you know, as time went on, I also saw those you know, some trees that I was like, I don't know if this will, you know, make it um, like bloom again. Um, that was really reassuring to see. Um, and there are like, you know, different kind of practices within the therapy realm, like ecotherapy, where you kind of like see um, nature and allow nature to kind of come into your, uh, your like practice of like wellness, like emotional mental wellness. And at the time I was in ecotherapy. So like also processing those things with my therapist. So like this poem very much started as like a journal entry um, or multiple journal entries. And then I like put it in and put the pressure of like the craft of poetry on it. And it ended up being that poem eventually. Um, but yeah, literally it's just like I have to see things and I have to write things down and I have to like think through things even if Nobody wants me to, because that is the way in which, that is at least like what poetry has always functioned um, as for me, is like a way for me to see the world and a way for me to reflect the world to possible readers, right? And a way to come to questions or conclusions or efforts at resolution from the kind of like man-made disasters that we live through. Um, So that poem is like me trying to do that, trying to invoke, you know, the knowledge that I have of the environment, trying to invoke like literally just like what happened, um, almost from a journalistic standpoint, Um, and then also like, you know, using figurative language, using um, form. You know, um, I I think of a poem that feels in the lineage of this poem uh, is uh, Not Even This by Ocean Vuong, which is a poem that also is kind of like. It's my
0: favorite poem of all time, actually.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's like very journal journal entry-ish in a similar way as this poem. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's me like literally figuring some things out despite people not wanting me to figure them out.
0: I can totally see the connection to not even this, and it it makes sense now why I love both of these poems. Um, One thing that feels really important to me as you're talking is, it's also about telling the story on the ground and from the voices of people who are there as well. I think there's something to be said that America loves a disaster, but America even more so loves to send outsiders in to cover a disaster and then move on in a few days. I can't tell you how many tweets and social media posts I saw during this winter storm, talking about how, you know, Texas deserved this, this is what you get for voting red, you know, this is this is a direct consequence of your actions, which is just infuriating. And it goes back to what you spoke about at the very beginning, and that there's alternate stories here that you aren't being told. And I think the media contributes to things. You know, I love local journalism. I also, as a folklorist, can recognize that fields like folklore and journalism have contributed to some of these myths in really negative ways. And I think artists have a a really important role to play right now in that they can be voices from the ground. You know, artists are not upholden to the same or beholden to the same standards that sometimes journalists are in a way that is both difficult, you know, you can write whatever. Sometimes artists get too speculative, but I also think artists have kind of this really radical power. I want to talk a little bit in your work. I know you do some things with Afrofuturism um, and thinking about the ways in which things like science fiction um, or even just fiction in general can offer these pathways for reimagining at the very end of this poem. I have to pull it back up now. You're talking a little bit about anything we dream being better than this, and I am interested in the role that genre plays in your work. I know you're largely a poet, um and you've done a lot of prose work as well. But how do you think about concepts like afrofuturism or science fiction in that element of belief and reimagining?
1: Yeah, um, first, like I especially hate when people say like oh, Texas, or oh, the South deserves this. It's like, you can't think the the ballot box is just the one place that exists for people to, like, share their opinions. You just can't think that. And then, like...
0: It's easier for people to think that way than to confront their own biases, right? Like, it's easier for someone to just blame a whole region than actually deal with the fact that, you know, this is everywhere. It's not just the South.
1: Yeah, and no place is, like, 100% red. Like... Do my undocumented friends deserve that? Do my people, like friends with felonies who literally can't vote, um, deserve that? Um, have the voting rights like unnecessarily stripped of them? Do the people in jails in Texas who do still have the right to vote but voting booths are not accessible to them in jails deserve that? Do literally the four biggest cities in Texas, which are all blue, deserve that? Right? Um, do like it's just like ridiculous. Um just wanted to say like that kind of thinking is really like reductive and unnecessary. But uh, yeah, with uh, Afrofuturism in particular, you know, like I think you have to uh, show and display that a future is possible in order for some people to like understand that a future is possible because um, I don't know that we live in a very futuristic time. Um, You know, a lot of us are just like going through the motions. I feel like almost every day when I log into Twitter, um someone is just like where are you going and the the answer is like through it bro I'm going through it like (laughs) I'm just taking it day by day I can't think of what happens next year I can't think of what happens tomorrow I gotta get through today um and that's very understandable and I think that the writing that has changed me the the literature the music um etc that has changed me is music that is like thinking about tomorrow and thinking about what we need to in order to get to a tomorrow that's not like today, right? Um, And the first poem in, in Freedom House is Black Life Circa 2029, which I wrote in 2019. And I'm like, in 10 years, what would be like the best situation that Black folks could be in that is not today? And when you write that, all of a sudden it feels like just that much more possible. I think about a poem by uh, Franny Choi called The Museum of Human History. Um, It's a poem in which Franny uh, writes from the perspective, Franny, amazing poet, uh, writes from the perspective of like children who are visiting a museum and the museum is like set in the future and they are looking at like remnants of like the police state. And, like, there's a docent kind of, like, explaining to them, like, this is what having police was like. This is what, like, prisons were like. Um, And I think that that was such a revolutionary poem for me the first time I read it, because it's like, literally, this could be 2020-whatever, right? Um, This could be 2030-whatever. This could be the future that, um, you know, the generation after me. I'm a millennial. The next one is Gen Z. Gen Z has things that, you know, Gen X like, like, put forth, right? Like, I think about that organizing that I think that all organizing is kind of like, in a way, like, all especially Black organizing is Afrofuturistic in some way, because you're like, thinking about the future, and you're pushing forth a future when you do that, right? And I aspire as a writer to be pushing toward a future and putting works behind that future in ways that make sense to me and supporting those who are putting works behind making that future happen. Because I think about like, you had to be an Afrofuturist in the civil rights movement to think about like a life of integration. It's not something you've ever seen, right? It's not something that any of those people had ever seen, but they knew it was possible. And they had that image in their heads and they organized with those things in mind in order for that to happen, right? Um, when, you know, we see folks on, uh, picket lines, you know, the, uh, WGA is having a strike right now, um, for, in order to ensure that these, you know, large studios don't continue to, like, gobble up all this money and not give it to any of their writers. It's like, you have to see the foresight of, like, this is possible, therefore I'm forcing it to happen, right? In order for those things, in order to, like, in order for those things to come to pass, you have to have the idea that it can happen. Um, So throughout this book, you know, in multiple ways, I'm trying to say, like, we have to start thinking about what's possible in order to get out of, like, what is. What is does not have to be how it always is. Um, And there are lots of forces that want us to think this is how it always is. It's like, you know, ICE didn't exist before 2003, right? Every city didn't used to have police. Um, You know, police didn't always have, like, 40% of a city's budget, um, there was a time before these things were the way that they were. There was a time before school shootings. Literally, I've lived in a time before school shootings. So we know that it doesn't always have to be this way. Um, so continuing to say, continuing to put forth um, the fact that there a future is possible, and I can see that future so clearly, I think is like necessary to keep people out of that apathy it's so easy to be in apathy but I think it's necessary that those of us who are not just going through the motions every day um continue to keep that hope alive
0: I love that it's just like to me what we were talking about earlier in that it's empathy is difficult right it's much easier to just go around and kind of be jaded and be an asshole and say yeah we're gonna blame the south right we're gonna say that all the problems are due to this region I think it also does a disservice to the amount of people who have long been working in the South as activists and as organizers and who often thanklessly have been putting this work out only to still be in this moment where nobody even wants to recognize that it's happening. And art can be a tool into that. I think another huge piece of it, um, and this is something we talk about a lot on this podcast is community, right? Like you need to be able to build those communities of people who also believe that this future is possible because It starts with one person, but I think it's really difficult, especially in this region, in this moment, to be trying to build those futures on your own. And I read your most recent newsletter this morning, and I just love what you were talking about of community and lurking and the idea of being a lurker on the internet. Um, Do you want to elaborate a little bit more? Tell us more about that. I don't want to spoil the newsletter because we'll link to it. But it was something I felt like I really needed to read right now, and I loved your approach to building community.
1: Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I don't know. All I do on my newsletter is just like blab about things that I'm thinking. So I'm glad that, you know, you read.
0: that's what we do here too, you know, (laughs) every good newsletter. (laughs)
1: I'm glad you read that in jest. Cause I'm like, I, I hate actually like entering a literary room and being the only black trans person there. Um, I don't like that. I I get nothing from that. Um, so it's also a space in which, you know, that newsletter is space in which I try to like put my best foot forward to be like, I'm here and I want you to be here too. So like I'm going to share what's worked for me in hopes that you take away like what's useful and like make it into your own. Right. I think I the thing I love about literature is that there is no pressure to make something like a hundred percent new. All we're doing is ripping off of each other, but like making, you know, that thing that Audre Lorde did, you know, way back when, like my own KB-esque thing. Right. Um, and I don't know I all I do is lurk you know I think that I wouldn't have social media if I wasn't a lurker and if I didn't have to like promote myself all all the time because we live in a society but um I think it just means like like in that newsletter uh in that particular section I'm talking about like going to indie bookstores in your town and like literally just like being curious staying curious I think makes for a good writer and also a good like I don't want to use literary citizen, that feels so whack, but, like, making for a good, like, literary community member, literary kith, you know, Um, because we all got to be, I think, we we all got to stay curious about each other, so we don't get, like, to be jaded and individualistic, you know, assholes because I, I don't want to live in a world where we're not like reading each other's books um, where we're not going to each other's open mics where I'm not just like sitting at an open mic where I don't know anybody and just like listening to see what I can learn from others um, on a craft level and on a person level um, I, I tell the story sometimes of like I don't know that I like knew a lot about like like the free Palestine movement until I like, you know, saw some poems by George Abraham, right? And like saw some poems by some other Palestinian writers like talking about that shit. And I'm like, hell yeah, free Palestine too, the fuck? Like that's fucked up, right? Um, And I think that I like that art gives you that opportunity to like, just cause you were, you know, you got up out of the bed and went to that open mic and, and went to that like poetry slam or whatever, Um, and you like or you open that book right Um, you are curious enough to now like learn something that you can teach other people um, and that you I'm always trying to as a writer like pay it forward as much as I possibly can I mean like if you're trying to like just read my somewhat monthly um, blabbings on definitely check out my newsletter it's a little Substack. it's free I don't charge people for it Um, but yeah,
0: it's such a challenge to the commonly held perception of art and especially of writers, which is that we're all just sitting around individually, like with our notebooks and, you know, community, I think of all the art forms and I'm saying this as a writer, writing often does feel the most inherently isolationist, um, and the most difficult to kind of overcome that with. And I think so much about what is art and writing specifically made in community look like and how you can transition, that piece of being a lurker, I felt like I spent years like lurking on the internet or lurking in kind of bookstores or cafes or open mics. And it took me a long time to figure out how to even translate that into, okay, I'm going to go from now being a lurker to being an active part of this community. Right. And I do think that's a challenge with it of you have to show up in the world and you have to be curious and be there, but you also have to be willing to like be seen by the world and to be a part of it as much like we were talking in a recent podcast, the difference between openness and vulnerability, right? Like it's one thing to be open and to put yourself in these situations. It's an entirely different thing to be vulnerable, right? To be the one to go up behind the open mic, to publish your work on the internet, to open yourself up for recognition and kind of mutual respect in these connections as much as critique and challenge. I also think that's what makes us better artists and that's what makes these communities so important. And it wasn't until I like clicked that piece in my brain and started doing projects like this and just reaching out to people that I feel like things shifted. It it also feels really important to me in a moment where we are in the South with Southern artists who are, you know, a lot of us are getting kind of thrown at, just things thrown at us left and right Um, in a way that, you know, you're dealing with stereotypes from people outside the other region or in other regions, but you're also dealing with you know, a lot of artists, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of political friction. We're going to start seeing tensions of artists speaking out. I mean, look at what's happening with the book bannings. Community is so important. But how do you get from that piece of I'm participating in this to I am an active part of it and I'm contributing to the community? Because when you're growing up, and this is this is how I feel about it, but when you're growing up thinking I want to be an artist, you don't really see stories of artists depending on each other and artists needing each other. It's like this great individual genius. And so I love the way that you describe it of like, I have to pay it forward, right? I've got to show up for my community and I have to give, I really strongly believe that community is just as much about what you give to it as much as what you gain from it. And and you can't call it community if you're just going to a space and taking things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I consider myself like an introvert introvert. Like, I just really am not that person that's going to be chatting it up with the barista while I'm getting like, you know, <laughs> my tea at the local like coffee shop like i'm i'm usually not that person but like if i was to be a writer right like i had to just tell myself like no one will read your stuff if you don't allow people to know you right um and you allowing people to know you means going up to that person who you think did good at the open mic and being like i liked your poem Literally, I just would uh, challenge myself when I moved to Austin five years ago. I came here with no job, LOL. So like I had all this time to go to all these different open mics and stuff. And I just had to challenge myself to be like, just take some breaths and go up to at least one person at every event that you go to. And if you like their work, tell them that. Like people like to hear stuff like that, right? And you, who knows that might that person might be on the precipice of quitting, right? I've been there before, where I'm just like, I could just never write a poem again. I'm I'm kind of done with this, right? And like, you don't know how much a pick me up could be like that email that you send or that going up and and you know saying like, hey, I I really liked your stuff. How can I keep up with you, right? Um, and like getting to know like going to bookstores and. And getting to know the people that work at those bookstores like what made you interested in working at a bookstore and like what kind of books do you recommend like I had to learn how to how to be the conversationalist like I don't know if you've seen Abbott Elementary but I'm very much a Gregory Eddy right um where like there was an episode where he just like went up to somebody and was like we're both wearing the same color or something like that like just so awkward but I had to embrace the awkward, like because I've been in so many awkward situations now I feel like i I get embarrassed by very little, so like I'm like the worst case scenario is that they don't wanna talk to me, oh wow, one person out of the billions of people that exist in the world don't wanna be my friend. I'm gonna die like it's just not that big of a it's <laughs> not that big of a deal right so i I had to just like push myself out of my comfort zone. And really like chatted up with people, uh, in these literary spaces, and also like, like asked for what I needed. So I know that when I moved to Austin, I needed like some kind of writing workshop because I was just like, I I've been a student my whole life. I don't want to be a student right now, um, and I want to be in a space where I feel like I'm generating work, but I don't want it to be an academic space. So then I found you know a monthly workshop of like writers of color uh women and non binary writers of color and you know some of those people are like still my bestest of friends to this day right um so just being able to be vulnerable, right? And like, I, I teach this uh, thing every now and then now, uh, this session called building your platform as a writer. And the thing that I feel like I get the most friction about is like social media and like going up to people. A lot of writers are like just socially awkward, but I think you've got to in- embrace that. You know, the writers that are extroverts, I envy them a little bit because I, I, I cannot always like naturally go up to people and just like be that conversationalist. Um, but I think it's necessary because, like, how do we expect to touch people with our work if we're not allowing ourselves to be touched consensually, of course, but, like, in touching others, right? Um, it's, it's, it's vital. I, I wouldn't be the writer that I, I feel like I would be a way worse writer if I wasn't in conversation and collaboration with other writers at all times. Like, I want to be ingesting words from others. I want to be, like, learning what it means to be a writer and person from other writers and people. And, you know, I I think this book really is a culmination. I mean, like, there are so many after poems, you'll notice that in the book, where it's like, after this band that I was listening to at the time that I wrote this, or after this other uh, amazing writer, I have a a poem after Jericho Brown, a poem after the miracles. You know, I was listening to a lot of Janelle Monet and Solange when I was writing this book. So I think like, I interpolate them at different points, things like that.
0: KB, I truly could keep talking to you all day, and I really look forward to continuing to follow your work as it grows and expands. We are coming to the end of our time here, and we always end the podcast with one final question, which I will leave open to you to interpret however you see fit, and that question is, what do you believe in?
1: Mm. I believe in our individual and collective capacity to change I believe in good barbecue. Um, I believe in all of our ability to be good, no matter. Um, Jericho Brown has this quote of a poem that I just really love. It's like, some of us don't need hell to be good, right? Like, I believe in our capacity to be good people and do good things without the threat of eternal damnation or without the threat of you know, a gun. And I want us to move towards that in a society where we have the genuine want and desire to be good and we don't have to rely on punitive systems in order to feel safe around each other. Yeah, I believe in love is what I'm saying.
0: Beautifully said, I agree. Believe in love in all the forms, all the ways. KB, for anyone who wishes to follow your work, where can they find you and where can they stay up to date?
1: Yes, for sure. So my little section of the internet is Earth2KB. That is E-A-R-T-H-T-O-K-B. That's me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. That's my website, earth2kb.com. That's my Substack, which is my newsletter, earth2kb.substack.com. The brand is strong. So Look me up on literally anything. Buy Freedom House anywhere you get books. I would prefer that you support your local independent bookstore and buy it there. Um, But if you'd like to buy it online, I suggest bookshop.org or deepvellum.org, where they do have a 20% off code. And the code is, you guessed it, read more. Um, So you could get it for (laughs) cheaper than the retail price if you buy it directly from the publisher, which is DeepVellum. Um, It comes out officially on June 6th, um, but you can buy it right now anywhere you get books.
0: Thank you so much for being here and for having this conversation with us. It is a joy and a pleasure to talk to you. And I so look forward to continuing to follow your work. To all of our listeners, wherever you are in the world, have a good day. Good night. Be good. Stay good.